Becky, look at her banner. It's beauty, bitch. Warning, this show contains adult content, strong language, mature themes, discussions of sexuality, politics, triggers, and <gasps> feminism. Listener discretion and or earphones are advised. Hey, welcome to Bitchstery. This is the podcast about badass women in history who aren't in history books. Why? Because peckerheads. I'm Kelly <laughs> McLean. And I'm Lisa. Hmm, she's smarty pants, Lisa. <sighs> peckerheads is never not funny. That is the funniest word ever. It's, it's a very descriptive word. as well. Right? It's accurate. It's a very apt description for so mm-hmm. many. I'm also a big fan of dickhole. Like, instead of calling somebody, like, a pussy, I think, like, we should call him a dickhole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are erudite around here. What's good, girl? Oh, you know, <laughs> not that much, honestly, but... Not much. The Earth is not a good time right now. It's been, mm-hmm. I don't know, It's been a, it's been a wacky two years, three years going on, I guess. It sounds like longer than that. Like, yeah, <laughs> the neighborhood's gone downhill a bit here on Earth. Property well, values the aliens fly straight on by. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's bad. <laughs> um, yeah, our thing's a mess, but uh, here we are. It is depressing. If we were talking about current events, we could discuss it, but we're not. So don't tune out. Nope. So <laughs> not going to do it. No. But anyway, uh, please email us at the coolest email ever. Hey, bitches at bitchtory.net. You can also visit us at anchor.fm forward slash bitchstory. We have discontinued our ads for the moment. I'm sure no one's going to be real sad about it. Um, So if you have the ability to throw a few bucks at us occasionally, it would help a lot for helping us maintain production value. Um, There is a magical little button on anchor.fm forward slash bitchstory that says support. If you click that, there's like a monthly thing of like you can go from 99 cents, 4.99 or 9.99. And it says monthly, but obviously you could not do it monthly. You could cancel it after a month or two or whatever. But we would appreciate it. It would be great. We would. And of course, please share the pod with like-minded friends. There's also a link on anchor.fm forward slash bitchery that says listen on Spotify. Uh, so if you have Spotify and you can do that for us, we'd really appreciate it. Um, it helps our stats. I don't know. It's like, you know, everything has to get ruined by metrics at some point, And this oh, is no God. exception. <laughs> Fucking metrics, man. I had never really heard that term until I got real deep into marketing. And I was like, and now I fucking hate that word. It's just the worst. Can we just go over the metrics? No, we can't. Yeah. <laughs> I liked it when I was marketing, but more like PR. Now I'm marketing like yeah. justify your existence with these numbers. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. Not to whine yeah. about that. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah. How about that enormous train disaster in Ohio that we're not talking about because we're not doing current events? Let's not talk about how Trump <laughs> rolled back not, all the EPA rolled back rules. the restrictions, and now his people are blaming Buttigieg. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> Buttigieg, he's not even in charge of it. Right. Who <sighs> doesn't have anything to do with that? Not but talking about they, that. There's a, there's a video, if you're so... Uh, interested that Trump actually had a uh, ribbon cutting for himself. Uh, 
the day that he rolled back these restrictions. There's lots of a big pile of paper and he cut a ribbon in front of it because of course he did. But anyway, you can find it on you can find it on YouTube. The narcissist. I would put the link if we were talking about current events, but we're not. So we're not. We're not talking about current events because Oprah. nobody likes that. <laughs> but, but yeah. Here we are. <sighs> you know, be pissed off about that. Mm, our badass bitch of the week. Yes. Miss Rachel Carson would be very, 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 very upset. Rachel She didn't Carson. like heads and she didn't like a mess on the earth. Period. <laughs> she liked woodpeckers, but not pecker yes. heads. Woodpeckers all day long. Pecker yes. heads, no. Never. Mm-mm. Out. So well, she let's was... talk about Rachel, shall we? <laughs> yes. Um, first, just to give a little background, she was born in, I forgot the year now. 1907. <laughs> uh, 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 1907. Um, and so she was kind of growing up in the time, in some rough days, you know, like the depression and all that kind of stuff. But she sort of came of age when somebody who I like a great deal because I am a National Park nut, as you may know, if you listen to this show. And it, she grew up around the time when FDR was making it possible to do, to have more conservation efforts. Uh, FDR himself um, had a lifelong interest in nature and the environment and such. Um, <clears throat> him and his cousin Teddy like grew up riding horseback, you know, in, in, in you know, upper New York state and things like that. Um, he, in his lifetime, planted a half a million trees in Hyde Park, where he was from. Half a million trees, uh, which was work conducted in cooperation with the State University of New York, or SUNY, if you're from that area, of science and forestry in Syracuse. Um, so as a young politician, he became, you know, leader in conservation. He talked about that. He ran on that um, quite a bit. Um, Gifford Pinchot, and he addressed the uh, New York State Assembly. And Pinchot's uh, illustrated talk depicting the denuding of a Chinese forest and the threats of a timber famine were a pivotal, mo- 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 bleh, pivotal moment in FDR's growth as a conservationist. Um, you know, back when we were talking, when we were having, talking about current events and we were talking about rolling back <laughs> things such as uh, air quality. Mm-hmm. And I said, when I was in China, <laughs> mm-hmm. I've been to China and you don't want no mm-hmm. air quality restrictions. You could yeah. see the air. Literally see it in front of you. Not supposed to be able to see the same sort of talk that he went to about forests. Yeah. Um, So Teddy and Frank, Teddy and Franklin were, you know, champion conservationists. And um, he created the national, Teddy created the National Forest Service, which established 150 national forests, uh, 51 federal bird reserves, four national game preserves, five national parks, and 18 national monuments, monuments by enabling the 1906 American Antiquities Act. He protected approximately 230 million acres of public land during his presidency. So a lot of these million acres. Didn't Peckerhead want to remove the protection on some of those things? I can't remember. Yes, he wanted to drill there and strip mine and do all kinds of things because who likes an environment? Just takes a lot of water. Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) And building on Teddy's legacy, his cousin Frank created the Civilian Conservation Corps. He reorganized and expanded the National Park Service and fostered numerous acts and legislation protecting the environment, providing a basis for future conservation. Um, So when he was the governor of New York, they called him the conservation governor. 
Um, he cited benefits of forests during his radio addresses. And on March 31st, 1930, um, he said they protect the headwaters of our rivers and streams. They prevent the too rapid runoff of rain and melting snow and tend to equalize the flow of streams. They return to the land more than they take and maintain its fertility. So you live in the land of mudslides. You can preach yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have a you have a fire that burns off all the trees and then mudslides. Yep, as soon as it rains. So he supported the 1931 Hewitt Reforestation Amendment to the New York Constitution, which resulted in planting tree seedlings on thousands of acres of abandoned farmland with depleted soils and significant erosion. Um, so he protected the wa the waters um, of New York doing that. Um, and so as to do with the lady that we're talking about tonight. On April 5th, 1933, one month after, just one month after he became president, he didn't dick around trying to <laughs> make gay people not get married or... <laughs> ban drag? Yes, ban drag queens. Um, he decided so to do something, you know, that had to do with governing. Um, and he signed the Executive Order 6101, which was, called, which was the Emergency Conservation Work Act, creating the Civilian Conservation Corps, 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 hello, Corps. This <laughs> act addressed two pressing needs, unemployment from the Depression and the repair of environmental damage with one of the most successful New Deal programs ever. Imagine that. Program, like, he, em he employed long. 3 million people over nine years, and the CCC played a critical role in FDR's strategy to conserve land and natural resources and raise public awareness of the outdoors and the importance of natural resource protection. Across the nation, the CCC planted three billion trees. That's billion with a B. They wow. built campgrounds and trails, removed invasive plants, improved wildlife habitats, and fought tree-killing insects. Take that, beetles. They also preserved mm -hmm. historic sites, built roads, bridges, and dams. 40 million acres of farmland benefited from erosion control projects. Uh, 150 million square yards of stream and lake shores were protected. 814,000 acres of range uh, were re-regitated -reg and stocked. Se 972 million fish. Sorry, fishies. Wow. Not so good for fishies, but... Um, yeah, so he had a, you know, National Park vision. And in that, he created a lot of programs, a lot of departments within the government that were responsible for, you know guarding wildlife, guarding wetlands, guarding, you know, mm -hmm. hunting grounds, all that stuff. So, and in, in that environment is where the lady we're talking to, about began her work. I just want to say, how dare he pretend to be a politician being so effective and giving a shit about things other than money and politics? Who does he think he was? Well, and creating jobs while preserving the environment. Who what? the heck? What? Kind of a creep. Get out of here. What kind of politician are you? The kind we need now. Anyway, we're talking about Rachel Carson. We're not talking about current events because we don't do that anymore. Rachel was born in 1907, as Smarty Pants Lisa has stated. Um, she has been called the finest nature writer of the 20th century. She is remembered more today as the woman who challenged the notion that humans could obtain mastery over nature by chemicals, bombs, and space travel. 
than for her studies of ocean and natural life. She kind of sprung onto the scene, pun intended, after her book, The Silent Spring, which was published in 1962. Actually, she sprung on the scene way before that because she died in 1964. Mm-hmm. Is that right? How is she that was right? Actually, well, she actually was not even, not even just you know, our girl, because she was an environmentalist, she was one of the first podcasters. She wrote radio addresses for the... that's right. For the, like, parks or somebody. um, The the marine conservation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You do other things. Uh, Yeah, no, I had it, too. (laughs) I just was looking at it. Um, Anyway, I'm just tripping out that she wrote Silent Spring. Hang on, let me... Let's talk about what book she wrote, because I have a whole list here. Um, Okay. Which which link am I looking at? Please hold. Um, biography. Books. Okay. Books by Rachel Carson. <laughs> Under the Sea Wind, 1941. The Sea Around Us, 1951. The Edge of the Sea, 1955. Silent Spring, 1962. Um, a Sense of Wonder was published after she died. Yeah, okay. And then some stuff written by other people that included some of her work. Um, the first two, the first three were um, marine biology-based. Um, Let's see. Let's just talk about what they were um, rather than trying to summarize things and sound like I know what the fuck. Um, she, I, I found the, I found the podcasting thing. If you want to do that while you. Yeah, go ahead. She, she had a, so she, her father passed away. She had a part-time job in a, in a lab at Johns Hopkins and she had to leave because her dad died and she had to look for a more lucrative and full-time position and um, it was like during the depression in 1935, her dad di- died suddenly mm-hmm. and, you know, they were already kind of in a world of hurt. So um, she had to leave to take care of her mother and she had to find something um, to do. So mm-hmm. she had um, a, a mentor and I'm going to put mentor in quotes here, uh, Mary, Mary Scott <laughs> Skinker. Um, and she got a temporary position with the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries. And her job was to write radio copies, r- radio copy for a series of weekly educational broadcasts entitled Romance Under the Waters. And that makes me want to sing some kind of Little Mermaid song, but I won't. Well, and it reminds me of the movie The Shape of Water and the the, the completely different things. But I think they were <laughs> trying to. Better, downwards, wetter. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think they were trying to engage people by saying <laughs> the word romance. But yeah. Um, okay, so the first book published in 1941 um, under the sea wind her first book personal her fir- personal favorite um, do, 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 beautiful line drawings by Howard Fretch don't know who that is um, <laughs> takes you beneath the waves with intimacy and wonder um, it doesn't really say much else but she tried to make it like very personal um, the Sea Around Us, published in 1951, is almost like a biography of the ocean um, based on post-World War II geographical and ocean- oceanographic evidence of the life and work of the sea. Um, so lots of like new information that came out of 
the war. Um, then the Edge of the Sea, which was in 55, a practical guide to identifying the inhabitants of the sea that are found in marshes, tide pools, and shallows, and stuff like that. Um, and then Silent Spring. Let's talk about Silent Spring. Silent Spring um, warned of the dangers to all natural systems from the misuse of chemical pesticides such as DDT. DDT, dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. I can do that, but I have trouble with names. Please explain <laughs> in my brain. I don't know. I, I never knew what DDT stood for, so thank you. You do. So two chloros, two phenols, and three chloroethanes. <laughs> I, I know just enough to be extremely dangerous. And again, I can't pronounce people's names. Um, anyway, it was known as DDT, and it was a pesticide that caused all kinds of issues, not the least of which were human birth defects, horrific birth defects, until it was banned. Um, the book Silent Spring was it kind of focused on that and other pesticides, questioned the scope and direction of modern science, and initiated the contemporary environmental movement. So like no big, just no big. Um, <clears throat> It became one of the most influential books in the modern environmental movement and provided the impetus, a word that I love, for tighter control of pesticides. Um, let's see. Well, DDT uh, in the beginning was like they were, the military was using it um, mm -hmm. in battlegrounds to stop the growth of lice. Oh, and then once the war, once World War One ended, um, you know the chemical companies were like, now what do we do with it? And so they started selling it to um you know consumers where it wasn't tested for yeah it, it wasn't for you know places where you're supposed to live it was like put it there and you know when you go through the battleground it'll you know it'll kill things spray this ancient orange on your garden <laughs> yes it'll be amazing what comes out <laughs> it won't be good but it'll be amazing um <laughs> yeah so um yeah let's see evidence of widespread widespread misuse of organic chemical pesticides government and industry uh, by government and this is written so badly i didn't write this anyway yeah <laughs> what she said after world war ii they were doing bad shit with ddt and other pesticides and it prompted her says to reluctantly speak out not just about the immediate threat to humans and non-humans but um to question government and private science's assumption that human domination of nature was the correct course for the future. That was kind of her primary message. Like human beings are just sort of pounding their chests and destroying things left, right, and center <laughs> with everything. You That's know, what weapons, we pesticides. I know, aren't we a treat? Um, we are a fucking delight. <laughs> we are. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, then it says Silent Spring became the handbook for the future of all life on Earth. So again, no big. She's like, she's no big. Um, no, she was a big fucking deal. That's why we're talking about her. Um, she's a BFD. She didn't. Well, let's backtrack to like when she was born. Just some like basic facts. Rachel Louise Carson was born the 27th of May in 1907. Um, on a family farm near Springdale, Pennsylvania, to parents Maria Fraser McLean, so possibly a relative of mine, and Robert Warden Carson. She had two older siblings, Marion, born in 19, or sorry, 1898, and Robert McLean, 
born in 1899. Holla, McLean's. Um, <laughs> Rachel spent a lot of her time exploring the family farm, and she was enthusiastic about reading. Very um, precocious, according to this, because she started writing at the ripe old age of eight and then had her first story published in the St. Nicholas magazine, which was a children's magazine founded in 1873. And she was published again in 1918 when she was 11. Um, Pretty sure when I was eight, I was still eating paste. But good to know that she was right? things. I know. I was having my Barbies make out or something. <laughs> um, she graduated from high school in 1925, of course, at the top of her class because she's a brainy lady. Um, she attended Pennsylvania College for Women um, from 1925 to 1929. But in 1927, oh, she was studying English. Boring. Um, <laughs> but in 1927, she changed her major to biology, and then she graduated magna cum laude. No big. Um, <laughs> then she won a summer scholarship to the Woods Hole Marine Biological Laboratory at Woods Hole, Mass. Um, mm -hmm. Then from 1929 to 1932, she studied at John Hopkins, no big deal, in the Department of Zoology. Um, she had an internship in 1931 with Raymond Pearl's Institute for Biological Research, School of Hygiene and Public Health Genetic Research. That was no big deal. And then she got her master's degree in 1932. <laughs> um, she died pretty young. She died in 1964. Um, of a heart attack, I believe. Um, so I'm wondering if she and her father kind of had the same thing going on. Because she was pretty young. She was. Oh, yeah. What was she in her? That would have made her in her 50s. Just kind of barely. Yeah. Like in her mid-50s. Dude. Um, in 1934, like you said, she was forced to leave Johns Hopkins to seek employment to help her family during the Great Depression. Because her father died. And then things just kind of. Um, yeah, and then she worked on the radio series Romance Under the Waters. <laughs> These are our radio voices. Can we, we just get to the romance too? Fish I need to talk, having. I need to talk about that really quick. What? So I need to talk about her romance really quick. Yeah. Because with her friend, in oh, quotes, her Dorothy mentor. Freeman, okay, so she was she was a lifelong devoted friend and neighbor of Dorothy Freeman. Okay. This is what, this is what historians call their relationship. Okay. So okay. let me read you just a quick quote from their letters of lifelong devoted friends. You can tell me if you talk to your friends like this. Okay. Okay. Huh? Um, let's see. Uh, one of the quotes is, but Oh darling, I want to be with you so terribly. And that, that it hurts. I love you beyond expression. My love is as My love is boundless as the sea. Never forget, dear one, how deeply I have loved you all these years. All the time. Didn't you get my email that said that the other day? <laughs> you um, your pals like that. <laughs> this reminds me of um, Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. And <laughs> it's around that same time. Apparently, every woman had like a secret girlfriend. Um, <laughs> I didn't pick up on that at all when you said Ooh. mentor in quotes. I get it now. I'm a little slow on the uptake. Um I mean, I admit that I have rainbow glasses, but come on. <laughs> so, um, so did this, did her friend, what's her friend's name? There, well, she had two friends, but this one is Dorothy Freeman. So did, was Dorothy in the same line of work? Um, 
Well, she lived on like Southport Island where she did a lot of her research on the shore. Okay, so and... they probably had romance under the waters is what I'm getting at. <laughs> it could be. They had a devoted friendship that would last the rest of Carson's life is what this historian calls it. That's very sweet. Yes. Hmm. So if you want to read about the 900 friendly POW letters, they are in a book called Always Rachel. Well, I didn't have that tidbit in my notes. <laughs> I have the gay notes. You have what? I have the gay notes. She keeps the gay notes. I keep the sciency notes. <laughs> the dye, whatever, dye, dye, trichloride thingy. Um, anyway, so she took the romance under the waters thing and then she submitted it to a local publication. Um, and let's see. She was asked to write the introduction to a U.S. Bureau of Fisheries brochure, hitting the big time as a copywriter. We feel that pain. <laughs> hey, we realize that you're a very accomplished and intelligent woman. We would never acknowledge that out loud anyway, but we'd like to know if maybe you'd like to write the introduction to our fish brochure. Um, it's an unpaid <laughs> job. Yeah, we don't really have and, any money for it, but if you want to do it, please get it done also, by tomorrow. Thanks. Could you fetch me some coffee, dear? That'd be great. <laughs> How about a sandwich? <laughs> After passing her civil service exam and outscoring all of the other applicants, of course, because she was a big old dummy, Rachel secured <laughs> a full-time post in 1936 as a junior aquatic biologist. Okay, raise your hand if you wanted to be a marine biologist when you were in the third grade. Ooh, I would have been hand. I, I know so many people who wanted to be a marine biologist when they were about that age, around 10. It's like because it was like, like playing with dolphins all day. Then you like learned it was about you had to learn how to say all those words that you just said, <laughs> yeah, do math and things like that. Yeah, I'm sure that that my fear of math and science, and also being told that those things were too hard. When I was in fucking college, I had straight A's, and I had a professor say to me that I shouldn't take astronomy because it was awfully hard. Your lady brain might have exploded. I still just bristle every time I think about it. Um, <laughs> I did use to tutor astronomy, and I always had at least one or two darlings that thought it was going to be about looking at pretty stars. So <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> we haven't talked about Orion once. You know, it's just all kinds of horrible physics and math and things. Right. But, no. Yeah. yeah. And I get that, but how dare he? Um, right. Anyway, if it wasn't for my fear of math and science, I might have pursued that. Although looking back and understanding sort of my natural skill set, if I could do anything and if I'd had the encouragement to do it, I absolutely would have been a doctor. Mm. So, I think so, you're a good doctor. Thank you. Um, all the girls listening that you know, are at that point in their life where you're figuring out who the hell you are and what the hell you want to do. I hope you're old enough to hear the swearing that happens on this program. But anyway, uh, but if you're a tween, if you're 30 or you're 40 and you've always wanted to do something, do it. Don't let anybody gosh. tell you you can't go to medical school when you're 40. Gosh. Well, I mean, I've had people tell me I should go now and I'm like, bitch, I'm tired now. <laughs> I mean, it is a lot of schooling, but hey, you know, if you yeah. if you want to do it, do it. 
Ugh, no, I'd rather just pretend I'm a doctor and my friends call me Dr. Kelly, so it's fine. <laughs> Kelly, what's this rash? Well, <laughs> anyway. Um, no, and you can rightfully say no. Somebody's like, can you look at this thing on my butt? You'd be like, I'm not a doctor. Nope, I refuse. Yeah. <laughs> but I can diagnose your toddler's rash in 30 seconds flat because I had them all. Anyway, so she did become a marine biologist and she was only the second woman to be hired in a full time position by the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries. Those woman hating bastards. Just kidding. Probably not. Um, her main responsibilities were to analyze and report data on fish populations and write literature for the public. It sounds riveting. Um, she wrote articles for the Baltimore Sun. And then in 1937, her sister died again, making her kind of the sole breadwinner, looking after her mother and her two nieces. My goodness, that's a heavy burden. Yeah. Wow. Where's the brother in all this? Does it say? What happened to Robert McLean? <laughs> for real, where the hell is he? I don't know. He just went off and did his own thing. He's like, oh, mother needs you. Oh, God. It's always the woman that has to take care of everything. Um, she had an essay under sea. She didn't have the essay under the sea. It was titled Under Sea. Published in the Atlantic, <laughs> Atlantic <laughs> Monthly. <laughs> wow. Um, then she started writing books. She wrote Under the Sea Wind and sort of the rest is history. And she rose up through the ranks of the Fish and Wildlife Service, renamed what well, used to be the Bureau of Fisheries. Um, and then she, during that um, course of that employment, she discovered the subject of DDT. In 1949, she became chief editor of publications and that allowed her to spend more time in the field and you know doing research and stuff then she wrote more books and she just kept writing books um oh my gosh there's so much here she licensed a documentary film based on the sea around us uh, but she wasn't happy with the script it was scientifically embarrassing and didn't portray the atmosphere of the book is what she said um, she had the rights to review the script. She had no say over the final content, led to many scientific inconsistencies within the documentary. Um, <laughs> I'm reading this off of discoverwildlife.com. And I don't mean to shade discoverwildlife.com, but this article is so poorly written. There are um, subject verb disagreements and typos. It looks, it's like I wrote it. And like one sentence paragraphs it's it's bad rachel clearly had nothing to do with the writing of this um anyway it's written very badly it could be um, that ai writing thing oh gosh <sighs> um let's see it said the whole experience left rachel embittered resulting in her never selling any further film rights to her work don't blame her oh here's the relationship with dorothy freeman Let's see. The friendship. Don't you mean the friendship? Oh, yes, I do. I mean, the <laughs> friendship. A lifelong friendship. Just like Eleanor Roosevelt had her <clears throat> friend with the secret room. Um, 
yeah, so many letters, time spent together during summer. The two discovered a shared love for the natural world in more than one way. Their descriptions <laughs> of the arrival of spring or the song of a hermit thrush are lyrical and their friendship quickly blossomed, as did their lust and love for each other, as each realized that she had found the other in the other a kindred spirit <laughs> and lover. Um, Oh gosh, yeah, lots of oh darlings and I love yous and and yet this article doesn't really address that they oh it sort of does but just barely whether their relationship was sexual it was a deeply loving friendship yeah because I say darling I want to be with you so terribly that it hurts to my platonic friends constantly yes I thought that you might. Mm -hmm. pretty sure that's how straight girls talk to each other all the time totally lisa my love is boundless as the sea <laughs> i to be with you so badly it hurts my darling yes but you know maybe it wasn't sexual according to this article okay <laughs> sure who wrote this her son um <laughs> pretty much like every historian that's not even like I, I mean i'm making fun of it now but that's like you know I know. Every historian was just like, they're good friends. Oh. <laughs> well, the, the episode we did on um, Eleanor Roosevelt was, I learned a lot. Like, I didn't know any of that. But during that period of time, it seems to me that there was a lot of lesbians sort of like coming into their own. There was, you know, Eleanor and her friends, they had like this little book club, which we're pretty sure was... <laughs> you know, a lesbian meeting. And then um, <laughs> Amelia Earhart was in the fold somewhere. And I know pretty much everybody wearing sensible shoes. That's the thing. Right. But, <laughs> but it just seems like, I, you know, it's probably what it, what is that as a result of? Do you think it was like wars and women being together all the time? <laughs> like, it just seems like there was a real, uptick in lesbian activity during those years interesting sure. to me. i well and i feel like it was just um i mean even now there's people in the closet but i mean i feel like back sure. then it was just sort of like women were finding they had other choices because you know they were going to work because of the war because of the depression they had it like people had like everyone in the house had to work does didn't right. matter like, who right. or what so i feel like they were just out and about more got out of the and house yeah. more able to question everything not just their sexuality but you know they're you know like i am smart i am intellectual i can learn this it's not this is not a man's thing you know what i mean i, I can't can learn. have an orgasm i mean intellectual <laughs> discussion <laughs> That's what out of the kitchen and into the arms of other women mm -hmm. anyway it's just yeah. I, yeah I don't well and you know there's a lot of um also men that were gay who needed women who didn't necessarily want to sleep with them. <laughs> you know, that's true. Sure, they wanted there to have are... public jobs or, you know, respectable yeah. quote unquote jobs. They needed women who, you know, they did their thing and they did their thing kind of thing. They had an understanding, no, really. You're right, because there's an, a number of movies about that same period of time where, um, you know, a man is either married to a woman out of, you know, some sort of convenience or whatever and there's an understanding or there's not an understanding or whatever it seems like during the turn of the century and around the 20s 30s 
it seems like a lot of people were realizing this. And then I feel like it got real weird in the 50s, which is what we're living through again right now. Um, yeah, real puritanical real quick. <laughs> yeah, the 50s became very buttoned up and like you're saying puritanical and evangelical religion took this major turn and then conversion therapy. Wasn't conversion therapy getting to be popular around this time? Yeah. Well, I think men came home from war, too, and the women were kind of like, eh. <laughs> you well, know, we did all these things without you. You said we couldn't live without you, and you, you know, we did all these things without you. And so, yeah, right. it's great that you're home, but, you know, we're not living and dying hanging on your every word, buddy. So, right. and I think the men were just like, well, got to take that power back. Well, and possibly, you know, when you spend years and years with the same few men, you develop a certain sort of bond that, you know was not really explainable also. Right. Everybody's gay. Pretty much everybody's <laughs> bi, people. We're all bi. Everybody is in a gray area. Yeah. At the very least. Um, what else am I missing about her? Other than she was the first environmentalist. Um, okay, let's see. She, I feel like there was a... Let me see here. Disturbed by Oops. the... Go ahead profligate use that's a good word of synthetic chemical pesticides after world war ii okay silent spring but then she was attacked by the chemical industry and some in government as an alarmist this sounds familiar but <laughs> courageously spoke out to remind us that we are a vulnerable part of the natural world um subject to the same damage as the rest of the ecosystem testifying before congress in 1963 she called for new policies to protect human health and the environment rachel carson died in 1964 oh after a long battle against breast cancer mm. man there's pictures of her right up to the end like you never would have known it that she was sick um well there wasn't chemo and shit back then huh Right. There's just, not, not a lot to be done, I don't think. Game, yeah. Her witness for the beauty and integrity of life continues to inspire new generations to protect the living world and all its creatures. And she's perhaps reincarnated in, um, gosh dang it, I just lost her name. <laughs> the young woman that keeps getting arrested. Uh, oh. <laughs> Greta. Yeah, Greta. Why did I couldn't yeah. think of her name? Thunberg. Um, I I have a list here of all the um, the acts, the um, the laws oh, that came out of Silent Spring. Okay, cool. So, <clears throat> because of Silent Spring, they pro it provoked the passage of the Clean Air Act in 1963, the Wilderness Act in 1964. The National Environmental Policy Act in 1969, the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act, both in 1972, wow. and the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency in 1970. By Nixon. All came out of that that's, one book. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Um, Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, also in 1972. Rodenticide. 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 Rodenticide Act. Say that fast. The policy of the Reagan administration emphasized economic growth, rolling back many of the environmental policies adopted in response to Carson and her work. You don't say. Mm. So I grew up um, hearing my dad 
proclaim what a great, 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 great man Ronald Reagan was. And so I, you know, idolizing my dad, I too was like, Reagan is great. Reagan is great. Reagan is great. It isn't until about the last, honestly, about the last five years that I realized Reagan did some horrendous damage to this country. Oh my God. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'll stay silent on that one. Silent as the spring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, constantly learning we are. And mm -hmm. I apologize for my former Reagan worshiping self. I was pretty much an asshole when I was in college, let me just say. <laughs> Not the ray of sunshine that I am now. <laughs> Um, let's see, after she died, she got a whole bunch of stuff. Um, in June 1980, which is really late, guys, um, <laughs> she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, she was on a 17-cent Great American Series postage stamp in 81. Several other countries have issued Carson postage as well. In 1973, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. University of California, Santa Cruz um, has a Rachel Carson College that happened in 2016. Um, Munich's Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society was founded in 2009. This stuff all happened way after she died. It's interesting. It's been since we've realized that we're in environmental crisis, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Which happened, what, in, like, the 2000s was around the time that most people in the, you know, regular population were like, oh, what? Um, that's interesting. Let's see. What else? Um, Springdale, Pennsylvania is now known as <laughs> Rachel Carson Homestead. <laughs> Became a nat National Register of Historic Places. Um, do, do, do other historic landmarks based on things that she did and where she lived. All kinds of things named after her elementary schools and state buildings and all kinds of things. Elementary schools in Gaithersburg, Montgomery County, Maryland, Sam, Sammamish, Washington. Why is everything in Washington hard to say? It's all um, Native American words. San Jose, California were all named in her honor. Middle schools in here, there, and everywhere all across the country. Two research vessels have sailed in the United States bearing the name, what's RV? Um, oh, research vessel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, research vessel Rachel Carson um, is on the West Coast, owned by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. That place is rad. And the others on the East Coast, operated by the University of Maryland, Center for Environmental Science. And there was one that was scrapped what? A former naval vessel obtained and converted by the United States EPA operated on the Great Lakes, but it is out of commission. Anyway, um, I mean, there's just so many. There's a, let's see, Carson, also a frequent namesake for prizes awarded by philanthropic educational and scholarly institutions, the Rachel Carson Prize 
founded in Stavanger, Norway in 1991, is awarded to women who have made a contribution in the field of environmental protection and on and on and on and on and on. There's like so many things that have been named for her. The centennial of Carson's birth occurred in 2007 on Earth Day that year. Um, Courage for the Earth, writers, scientists, and activists celebrate the life and writing of Rachel Carson was released as a centennial appreciation of Rachel Carson's brave life and transformative writing. Contained 13 essays by environmental writers and scientists. And so many other things. And you can get all of her books on Amazon. And what else? I think that's about it. Did I miss anything big? I don't think so. <sighs> well, I feel depressed now about the state of the environment. <laughs> state of the state. Yeah, the state of life on Earth basically is pretty grim. Thanks for tuning in. Join <laughs> us again for another <laughs> uplifting episode. <laughs> we talk about how all this shit's Are falling you? the fuck apart. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess that's about it. She was, I mean, just above and beyond. Mm. So many brainy ladies in our episodes. I used to think I was fairly smart. I don't anymore. <laughs> well, I'm just so motivated <laughs> to do so many things in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Like, I've been about to vacuum for like three weeks, and it's just kind of depressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> if I lived closer, I'd be like, I'm coming over in 30 minutes just to help you do get that done. Oh, God. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, the whole <laughs> They'd be like, oh, sorry, I took a nap instead. <laughs> anyway, I think that's about it for this environmentally depressing episode of Bitchstery. We hope it has inspired you and not depressed you, as it has me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, maybe freaked you out about all the poisons in your life. Yay. <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed it. Not the poisons, of course, but the learning. Yes, the learning. Indeed, the learning. <laughs> We dig it if you followed us. Dig it, get it. We'll see what we did there. Oh, if you followed well. us on Instagram at bitchstory.pod. Yes, please do. And send us a lovely message. We all need lovely messages. I don't know why this is how I prevent depression. I speak in cheery British accent. Send us a lovely message and I'll send one back to you and it will be lovely. It would be lovely. Uh, join us again next time for an enlightening episode about badass women doing amazing things since forever. And remember, well-behaved women seldom make history. So have a lovely week and go make bitch story. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>